welcome back to another episode of Vernacular Podcast. I'm sitting here across the table from me is Sally. Sally, how are you tonight? I'm doing well. And joining us virtually, observing appropriate social distancing from their cozy closet in the central parts of Michigan, where hopefully they're not getting flooded out right now. And I understand it's raining a lot in Michigan. Ooh. But anyway, Lara and Chandler ride. Welcome back to Vernacular. Thank you. Thank yeah, you. thanks. Uh, yeah, we're here in the closet. Um, it's we're about six inches apart, not quite six feet, um, but you know, we're married. So I feel like, uh, we can kind of pass that. Good. Yes. I don't have to call governor we're, Whitmer, we're governor Whitmer and report distancing. you guys for violating yeah. social distancing because you are married and you can be closer than that. Good. Excellent. I, I appreciate that. It's a real act of mercy. <laughs> uh, well, speaking of acts of mercy, uh, we see some acts of mercy in the movie that we're going to talk about tonight. Wow, what a transition. That was a terrible segue. <laughs> uh, wow, but, it's like but a plan. We're going to talk about Tree of Life. Uh, Sally and I had not seen this film until just a few weeks ago. It was my birthday last month, and you guys, Laura and Chandler, had been kind enough to give me a copy of Tree of Life uh, as a gift. And you could have given me the like digital coupon to download it from Google Play or Amazon, but there's something wonderful about <laughs> about incarnational realities and mailing me a blu-ray disc in the mail so i was uh, impressed by the blu-ray disc i like how you i'm glad could... that wasn't that wasn't about to be like a backhanded um like thank you <laughs> of like oh you could have given me a digital copy but you gave me this blu-ray what i forget that you're allowed to give people digital copies of things yeah you're just such an analog I person in Lara. terms of I only think in terms of hard copies. Well, also, uh, Zach, the um, you know the backstory is, of course, you've been trying to get me to watch Breaking Bad for a while. So uh, I made a deal with Zach where I told him, when you watch uh, Tree of Life, tell me, and I will watch the pilot of Breaking Bad. But I feel like I owe you more than that. I haven't yet watched more than the pilot. I did listen to episode one of The Breaking Pod, so a little plug for that oh, nice. uh, other vernacular family podcast, um, if anyone hasn't already checked that out. Um, but uh, the trouble is, Lara did not love the pilot, so I haven't watched the rest of it, because you know how it goes when you're sitting down to watch something in the evening, you kind of have to agree, right? Yeah. <laughs> yes, we have had many yeah. of those conversations. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm disappointed that you haven't gotten farther than one episode. See, I had to watch all of the Tree of Life in this deal, Chandler. And all of the Tree of Life is worth about two full seasons of Breaking Bad, I think, if my math is correct. I, I don't know about two full. I mean, like, we're talking runtime here. We get, like, what, two and a half episodes, maybe three? It's uh, Tree of Life feels like a solid four to five hours of runtime. All right. All I'm right. kidding. Two hours and 20 minutes. It's, it's not that long. I honestly think that it feels longer perhaps in the beginning and the then and then it gets into a little bit of a flow. Yeah. Uh, but you guys gave me this for my birthday. I was very excited to watch it uh, in part because Lara described this to me as the greatest film ever made. Lara, do you stand by this assertion that Tree of Life is the greatest film ever made? Well, I have to qualify that but because I have not seen every movie ever made. And I I say things in text that, you know, I might not say in front of a large group of people. <laughs> On a podcast, perhaps? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> well, well, I, I st it's definitely my favorite film. And 
probably the best film I've ever seen. But I I feel like it's it's too bold of a statement to say that it's the greatest film ever made. It's true. Well, we were texting, and uh, the exact uh, text conversation was, Zach said, Tree of Life, thank you so much. I can't wait to watch it. I said, great film. Laura said, best film ever made. Zach says, better than Avengers Endgame? <laughs> and Laura said, you know, it might just be. So I think we've got a low bar here that we have yes. to clear. I'm glad that you brought that up, Chandler, because I was literally just about to tell Laura or ask Laura, just to be clear, you're saying this is better than Avengers Endgame. <laughs> that joke has been made. It has, yes. Uh, and just, I mean, if our listeners have not heard me talk with Chandler previously about the Avengers universe, uh, Avengers Endgame is certainly not the best film ever made. We can link to the, that podcast. One of the worst films ever made, I think I would actually say. Um, okay. <laughs> well, let's get started here. Uh, Chandler, you already mentioned Breaking Pod. We're going to we're gonna pull something from Breaking Pod. On that podcast, Josh Goldman, who hosts it with me, uh, and I do what we call the two-minute summary, where we read from Wikipedia the summary of the episode. This has a couple of purposes. One, it allows us to have fun in making fun of the always awkward and imperfect syntax of the... Uh, the pros on Wikipedia, but second, it helps um, refresh our <laughs> listeners' uh, memories on what actually happened in the show. So we're going to do that today for Tree of Life. Um, the Tree of Life synopsis on Wikipedia is pretty long, so I'm going to kind of pick and choose, but this should refresh re refresh uh, listeners' memories, or if you've never seen the movie, give you a little bit of a, um, a framework for what we're talking about when we're talking about it. All right, here we go. Wikipedia, from the plot section of the Tree of Life page. The film begins with a quotation from the book of Job. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth, when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? A mysterious wavering light resembling a flame flickers in the darkness. Mrs. O'Brien recalls a lesson taught to her that people must choose to follow either the path of grace or the path of nature. In the 1960s or thereabouts, she receives a telegram informing her of the death of her son, R.L., aged 19. Mr. O'Brien is notified by telephone while at an airport. The family is thrown into turmoil. In the present day, the O'Brien's eldest son, Jack, is adrift in his modern life as an architect. One day, he apologizes to his father on the phone for something he said about R.L.'s death. In his office, Jack begins reflecting. From the darkness, the universe is born. The Milky Way and then the solar system form while voiceovers ask existential questions. On the newly formed... That's a hilarious description. <laughs> voiceovers asking existential questions. Um, all right, continuing on. On the newly formed Earth, volcanoes erupt and microbes begin to form and replicate. Sea life is born, then plants on land, then dinosaurs... Etc. Etc. In a sprawling in a sprawling suburban neighborhood in the American South live the O'Briens. I will uh, mention here as well. They don't just live anywhere in the American South. They live in Waco, Texas, and several of the scenes take place in and around Austin, Texas. There's a shot of the rotunda of the Austin Capitol where Sally and I have been because we used to live in Austin. Uh, there's another shot of Barton Springs Pool. A pretty pivotal scene in the movie happens in the Barton Springs Pool. So uh, lots of shots uh, in Central Texas, uh, Waco, and Austin. Okay, so they're living there in Texas. The young couple, the O'Briens, is enthralled by their new baby Jack and later his two brothers. When Jack reaches adolescence, he's faced with the conflict of accepting the way of grace or of nature as embodied by each of his parents, Mr. O'Brien embodying nature, Mrs. O'Brien embodying grace. Jack's perceptions of the world begin to change after one of his boy boyhood companions drowns at the pool. That's the Barton Springs incident. And another is burned in a house fire. He becomes angry at his father for his bullying behavior and begins to keep a running tally of Mr. O'Brien's various hypocrisies and misdeeds, lashing out at his mother for tolerating, tolerating such abusive behavior. One summer, Mr. O'Brien takes a long business trip. While he's away, the boys enjoy unfettered access to their mother, and Jack experiences the first twinges of rebelliousness. Uh, Mr. O'Brien returns home from his business trip. 
Shortly thereafter, he loses the, uh, loses the job at the plant that he works at, and he's given the option of relocating to work in an inferior position within the firm or losing his job. So the family packs up to move to a new location. Now we're in the present. Adult Jack leaves work. He's riding the elevator up, experiences a vision of following a young girl across rocky terrain. He walks through on this rocky terrain. He walks through an open door frame, just an empty door frame. Looks like there's nothing on the other side. Uh, but he walks through, and then he finds himself in this in this new landscape. Someone says, follow me in the darkness, which is ended by the lighting of two candles. He emerges from rustic doors, follows the girl, and then a young version of himself across surreal landscapes. On a sandbar, Jack sees images of death and the dead returning to life. He is reunited with his family and all the people who populate his memory. His father is happy to see him. He encounters his dead brother, whom he brings to his parents. The parents are then seen saying goodbye to the young brother as he steps out of a home into a vast expanse. Accompanied by a woman in white and a young woman, Mrs. O'Brien looks to the sky and whispers, I give him to you. I give you my son. Jack's vision ends and he leaves the building smiling while nature returns to the surrounding buildings as the sky is reflected in them. The mysterious wavering light that we saw at the beginning continues to flicker in the darkness. And scene. That is Tree of Life. So I'll ask you guys the question that I always ask Josh when we do these two-minute summaries on Breaking Pod. What letter grade would you give this summary? With the understanding that I did abridge it a little bit. I took some liberties to abridge it. D. 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 Okay. Wow. Um, I, I, yeah, I'd, I'd give it like a... Yeah, it's like, it's like a C, you know? It's, uh, it's like average. It's like factually accurate, but it flattens the movie too. Sure, sure. That, like a that is a, it's a, that's a great observation, Lara, and that is something that we consistently see across all of these synopses of Breaking Bad. We, we, we've, uh, we've learned or we've sort of picked up on this pattern that all of the Wikipedia plus synopses of Breaking Bad episodes, and I see this reflected here as well, read as if somebody is in the abstract watching this and then making a cliff notes version of it for some ch for some person who has to like take a test on the content without actually having seen any of the any of the wider context so i feel like this is doing the same thing this whoever wrote this seems like they didn't have a lot of engagement with terrence malick's other work not a lot of context to understand the intellectual milieu in which he's working the philosophical system etc uh, and they just do like a straightforward narration of the facts that also papers over a lot of the uh, the rich symbolism that's replete throughout the film. Yeah, and kind of just turns all the characters into one dimensional. Like the mom is really wonderful and the dad is really abusive. Right. And I remember, so we actually needed reason to continue watching the movie when we were a little bit in to it and so we read the wikipedia summary to just get us going over the creation narrative sequence and reading it i or i guess reading it made me want to continue to see what would happen but then once i was done i just realized wow that summary was just off in so many ways and i don't think it was accurate so yeah i think the movie was certainly better than the summary made it sound yeah so let's start with this question and lara and chandler i'll pitch this to you first this is a confusing film. I think to sum up my reaction when we had the flickering light close out the movie on the final scene, I think my reaction was something like, what on earth just happened? Uh, so let me ask you guys that. What on earth is happening in this film? I think having, having now the benefit of sort of sitting with it a little bit, reading some analyses uh, from smarter people than I who have really dug deep and thought about all of the imagery going on here, 
I think I have a better, better idea and can maybe contribute something to this conversation, but I'll, I'll start with you guys. What is going on here? And really, this was Chandler's question originally. What the heck is going on with this right. show? <laughs> I think it's a, a natural question that I certainly had when I first uh, saw the film. I mean, for context, this is what, our like fifth time uh, we've seen it. Um, and so we have had plenty of time uh, to think about it and talk about it with other people. Um, but I think that um, just a couple of uh, notes on general, the film in general is it's completely nonlinear. Uh, and in fact, I was listening to an interview uh, with some of the uh, people behind the film, Terrence Malick and his uh, cinematographer um, known as Chivo. Uh, and, and they described the film in terms of um, cubist editing. And if you know anything about cubism, then it kind of looks, you know, a cubist painting doesn't really look very intelligible. And the idea behind cubism is that you represent a single object, not from one point of view, but from a dozen or a hundred points of view simultaneously, which is why you get all these weird shapes. It's as if you um, did one of those like panorama things on your phone but you're constantly moving, so everything kind of is is all out of place. And uh, so if you think of the editing in terms of it's all from these multiple points of view simultaneously, the effect is instead of having a normal scene where time passes at a normal rate, uh, you're getting this sense of um, a single cut could be cutting out 10 minutes of the conversation. There's not the normal... Uh, continuity cues that you would get uh, in in a film. So a single cut, you could be in one scene and then be in the same scene two seconds later, or you could be, you know, 50 years later. Um, and so the sense of time in the film is much more fluid than it would normally be, which I think is what contributes to that um, sense of confusion. Uh, but at the same time, I mean, I think that... Um, once you're able to kind of understand that, uh, then it becomes clear that Terrence Malick is really interested in uh, a kind of spiritual sense of um, a life rather than just uh, a kind of factual sense. While I was watching the movie, I definitely was confused by the timing of everything. But hearing you say that about the editing is so fascinating. And it actually makes me appreciate the film even more because it seems like you said we have like a spiritual perspective, almost like God's eternal perspective. And so it doesn't make sense to us the way that things are necessarily unfolding, but it makes sense to him. And, or it could also be kind of like if a saint was having a mystical experience, then we would also, you know, certain things would be highlighted and certain things would be downplayed and we would skip around and all that kind of stuff. So that's, that's fascinating. That's really interesting. I'd love to hear that podcast. Yeah, I agree. I, I love that uh, interpretation. I think it makes sense, too, when you think about how the very first thing we hear in this film is that passage from the book of Job. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth, right? So the the narrator, in this case, who, you know, the voice of God, is asking us, like, who are you, yep. right, to think that you know everything. I'm the one who created all of this. Uh, this is my perspective, not yours. So I like the cubism comment, Chandler. I, I think maybe it might be helpful in answering this question of what in the world is going on here, to just take a step back and look at this uh, in addition to the spiritual time 
or eternal perspective comment that you just had, Chandler, to look at what Malik is trying to achieve or the overall portrait that he's trying to paint. And I think to do that, we have to recognize that this is an implicitly, I would even argue explicitly religious film. We have the passage from the book of Job early on. We have- Which really does frame it. Yeah, totally. Because all the, the, the characters are asking questions of God throughout the story. And God started off by saying, hey, I don't have to actually explain myself to you completely. Right, exactly. Um, and so we have the the initial framing of it in that way. We have the scenes in the church where the pastor is preaching on uh, nothing other than the book of Job. We have um, the scene at the end that I read on the Wikipedia summary that it's very much um, Jack, I think, having a, a vision of heaven. Uh, the dead are literally being resurrected. He's there with those who have died before. Um, there's a Marian dimension, I think, to the, uh, and by Marian, I mean um, uh, an mm. image of Mary, uh, to Mrs. O'Brien, especially at the end when she says, I give you my son. Um, uh, R.L., the one who dies, is a Christ figure at the end, uh, even when he says, or especially when he says, follow me to Jack. And earlier, when he al- allows Jack to intimidate him and shoot him with the BB gun. Yeah, to to torture him, bully him. Yeah, and then forgives him. Right, yeah, he turns the other cheek, and he like pretends to hit him with a piece of wood, uh, but doesn't. And the piece of wood could, in fact, be a nod to the cross. Uh, even the, the initials RL, some have speculated that it might be a reference to uh, the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoa, um, that's so, crazy. So tons of... Tons of Christian, specifically Christian imagery going on here. Terrence Malick is a Catholic filmmaker. I think that's a necessary thing to understand before answering the question of what is going on here. Um, So, Laura, what do you think is going on here? Essentially, it is a retelling of the story of Job, um, not told through one character, but through many um, although I guess you could say that that the O'Briens, well, I, yeah, it's all it's all of them who are are grieving the loss of R.L. and um, not knowing. I mean, in the, the initial sequences um, are those of of them discovering that R.L. has died and trying to cope with it and um receiving all of these um answers from family members and friends in their community that aren't really just these satisfying answers at all yeah that's a really Um, good point i didn't really fit the beginning part into the story of joe but that makes complete sense they've just experienced this tragic suffering and are trying to make sense of it well and just what you said too lara about the story of job through multiple characters that reminds me of the multiple multiple perspectives point that Chandler made as well. We're, so we're seeing this through multiple lenses. There's not one central person who is Job necessarily, but um, the story of Job is, in a broader sense, the story of humanity. Right. Yeah. And um, and and in, definitely the story takes a different turn than the story. Like it's not a, you can't map it completely onto the story of Job. Um, you don't really have any Elihu character that comes in. Um, but you do have the initial questioning, why has God allowed this to happen? And what are, what are the reasons behind this? 
and um and then through the this creation sequence you kind of you have that i mean it, it does re- correlate with um the part in job where god finally speaks and basically shuts up job and tells him you know it, it, it's that's that line where were you when i created the foundations of the earth um and then he goes on and describes all of what that was like and all of the things that job has no has not seen at all and you know cannot fathom um and and then and then so then the, the story breaks off from that and it, you know you go into this this story that's even broader than the story of job it's like this the fall like you see the fall happen in the character of um what why am i forgetting his name oh jack i forget his name as well yeah, yeah in jack, the character jack. Of, in, in jack like you see him come into the world and grow up and and um be tempted and rebel uh, succumb to temptation and and you know all of the like in coming into maturity all of the the struggles that he's going with internally you know trying to figure out um his relationship with his parents and um reconcile his the his mother's character to his father's character and wondering you know how much of each does he have him in himself um so so it i think it's like it starts off as like very very similar to joe but then ends up being kind of adam and like jack ends up being kind of an Adam character, and even like the O'Brien home at the beginning, it it does have this Edenic quality, and I think Terrence Malick, um, he likes to set up these kind of Edenic scenes and then um, introduce a fa- like the the element of the fall into them. He does that in a Hidden Life as well. That's what we heard about actually last week from Elena. She was telling us about a Hidden yeah. Life, and all the beautiful sweeping pastoral scenes. Yeah, yeah, that one like has a very similar Edenic quality to it. Um, and, and just for and, for listeners' clarity, Edenic, E D E N I C, so like the Garden of Eden, right? Laura? Yeah, like the Garden of Eden, paradise. Right. Yes, and so and I and and I think that the O'Brien's home initially does feel like that. It's, it's you have this you know this kind of romance between Mister and Missus O'Brien, and then they bring jack into the world and they bring another child into the world and um but then you begin to see that kind of falling apart as um as sin enters the picture i think that's a great insight laura i'm reminded that at the beginning of the film after we get the um the you know where were you when i laid the foundations of the earth the next thing we get is adult jack right or is that a little bit later oh yeah it is pretty early on it's before the all the creation imagery right yes it's definitely I think it's actually, I think it's right after the telegram, right? So they they get the telegram that their son has died. And then I think we get Jack in the modern office. Right. Lighting a candle would maybe for his brother. Um, Oh yeah. 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 It's in his house. Yeah. Um, He he lights a candle and then he goes to work. Yeah. So I think as you pointed out, Laura, this is not a, this is not a retelling of the narrative of Job. This is a like reportrayal of the archetype of Job. This fundamental question that humanity asks whenever things go wrong. And then the answer to that question, I think, is the retelling of the fall? The, of the of, well, of the whole meta narrative of mm. salvation history. So, Ending and with I mean, Jesus. the names of the sections of the movie are even they're named in this way, right? Like creation. So, we have the creation sequence. 
that obviously reflects creation, not even reflects, it like actually shows creation. And then the fall sequence is, as you were saying, Lara, the O'Brien's household, the childhood, et cetera. And it does start with this Edenic quality. Uh, there's, you know, family prayers around the table. Sally and I had read the Wikipedia synopsis, as she said, and we'd read about how bad Mr. O'Brien was supposed to be. And we were watching this and we we're like, oh, he seems like a good guy. <laughs> like th this, this family seems very happy. He seems like a little kind of classic 1950s, a little right. harsh, yes. a little um, unemotional, not great with connecting. But then you see these beautiful right. scenes where he's playing with his kids and right. just loves them. Yeah. So you think it's all I mean, good. The dinner table is not, most of their dinner table scenes are not great. No, but the first one is, I but think, But most right? of our dinner table scenes I think the first one's right. where the boy is, the boy prays, right? I think that's when he's like, help me not to be so mean. Sure. I just mean in terms of like the way that he has very strict rules yeah. about how we eat at the table together. Yeah. yeah that's why I, I love, I mean, we can talk, we, I guess we'll talk about this later, but Mr. O'Brien, oh, Mr. O'Brien is one of my, I mean, there are not many characters, but he's certainly one of my favorite just because of how complex he is. And you've said before, it's your favorite Brad Pitt performance. Yes, it's also my favorite Brad Pitt for, for performance. I get that. That makes sense to me. I think Ocean's Eleven is mad. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, uh, yeah, I so thought it was incredible. I, I want to come back to that, Laura, in just a second. The, the one thing before I forget it is that you were in this Edenic quality. And then what happens after Eden? I mean, the, there's obviously the primeval sin against God. But then after mankind is cast out, we see the fruits of that sin in the conflict between Cain and Abel. And the the brother's relationship in this film is very Cain and Abel-like. Now, one doesn't kill the other, of course. Um, he kind of threatens him. Yeah, there, there's, there's lots of conflict. And you see the conflict um, growing and becoming more and more severe. And pretty when soon like they're Abel like... Abel is loved by his family. His, yeah. The artistry, his, his creativity maps with his father's creativity. And Cain, aka you know Jack, is jealous of that. Right. Yeah. So that's interesting as well. Yeah. But but let's let's come back to this character question, uh, Chandler. I think you were about to jump in with something. So after after I uh, want after you say what you are going to say, Chandler, Laura, I want to come back to you. Let's each pick a character or a sequence in the film that really jumped out at us and just talk for a couple minutes about what was so great about that. So Chandler, say what you were going to say, and then Laura, I want to hear you talk about Mr. O'Brien, if that's indeed your choice. Yeah, just well, just to kind of wrap up this section, I was uh, just wanting to say that I think Tree of Life participates in this uh, tradition throughout literature, but I think there's definitely a strain of it in um, just American art in general of kind of uh, like examining these biblical stories almost as uh, like um, repeating kind of mythic tales that uh, reappear in different configurations every day in all kinds of different, uh, lives of, of ordinary people, uh, not just, you know, uh, kind of famous people or big figures, um, but in the lives of these ordinary families in, you know, in Texas, uh, I can think of East of Eden that does that, or, um, uh, you Faulkner. know, Faulkner and, um, Nathaniel Hawthorne and others, uh, who have, have done that kind of thing as well. Yeah, that makes sense. All right, so, Laura, let's talk about your favorite character or sequence. Okay. So my favorite character, 
Wait, character or sequ or wait, sorry, it's character or sequence. Yeah, you can pick. I mean, I'm gonna do a sequence. There's a sequence that really struck me in this film, but I want everyone else to feel free to pick. I mean, some it could be just, just something from the film that jumped out at you. It could be a motif even. Uh, so don't be constrained by character sequence. Just something that struck out at you or someone uh, that struck out at you stuck out at you in the film. I always do that. I say like struck out at you and stuck out at you interchangeably. And then I'm listening and like, what, why am I saying struck out at you? It doesn't make any sense at all. It's like, what is this, a baseball game? All right, Lara, back to you. Yeah, well, I'll talk about Mr. O'Brien a little bit. Um, I I do think it's it a it's a be, it's a poor reading of Mr. O'Brien to um, just see his actions as abusive and not see all of the other um, all the other things he's trying to do in the lives of his children. Yes, totally agree. And completely. Um, his own self image is um like he, he i mean he's a man who you know he he was this musician growing up and um he wants to share his love of music with his children but ultimately he ended up giving up that life uh or you know the 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 he didn't become the the great musician that he wanted to become and instead went into business um and he 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 wants his children to appreciate music as he does and doesn't he doesn't want his sons to um follow in his footsteps in a sense um there's this one scene in particular where he's um he's he's talking about which he's talking about some musician um who yeah well they're grilling uh, yes. And he's teaching, he's talking to his son about, uh, I don't know if it was Mozart or, or some, uh, one of those famous composers. Yeah. And he's, um, and he's just saying that, that you know, this, this composer uh, worked so hard and, and, and didn't let anything stop him. Um, and I can't remember exactly what the, what the dialogue is. Well, he there. tells him that, that they would, uh, he would practice and and try the uh oh and he said it was the, never the good section, enough um you know a hundred times and he never once said this is good you know he was always so self-critical uh that he could never be satisfied with his own work and mr o'brien holds that up as you know some kind of paragon of of what it means to to be a musician or maybe just what it means to be a man yeah i mean i think right. a, par a paragon of virtue in a way right yeah yeah, and so, and and you know, you have the sense that Mr. O'Brien feels that as though he has failed in that respect, and he doesn't want his sons to fail as he has. And he, um, he even says that right after he loses his job, that he's a foolish yeah. man. Yes. Um. And so there's just there's just so much depth to his character, in even though he has, you know, it, it's a it's a pretty quiet film. There's not a lot of lines, a lot of dialogue, but. Um, you just see this, this like torn, like his, his, his character just seems very torn about his life. Um, and, and his, he does have a broken relationship with, um, his sons and his wife. Um, and the, like, there are some time, there are moments in which he acts out of anger and, um, uh, I don't. I think that I don't know. I feel like abusive is such a strong word, um, 
I think it's just it's sin. It's just that's when when humans indulge in sin in their anger, that's what happens. And so um so I I yeah, he's just is just a is whenever I think of Tree of Life, I I I think of his character as kind of the defining um one of the defining aspects of the film. Yeah, I definitely loved him more than Mrs. O'Brien. I felt like he was more multidimensional and she was less so. Yeah. Um, I was, I, I mean, she pretty much was kind of the same character the whole time, except for that one scene where she starts to hit Mr. O'Brien. Um, that was the only time when I saw her, I guess, reacting to him. But um, so I really, I liked his character more because it was more complex. Um and and I think that's kind of the scene that jumps out at me is actually the one where they're fighting. They're physically like fighting with each other in the kitchen. And I'm not really sure what we're supposed to take from that because he is just lashed out at his son and like flipped over the table and or just like pushed everything from their meal on the ground. And then the wife just starts beating up on him and then or Mrs. O'Brien is hitting him and then he physically restrains her in a very harsh way I'm not really sure what we're supposed to get from that scene so that was definitely a question mark for me um but yeah I guess I don't have anything more to say about that so what struck you from the film Sally uh well I mean that scene was very I guess stood out to me um and like I said I I did really appreciate Mr. O'Brien's character and how he was trying to what he was trying to accomplish with his family even if he didn't always do it well um he had good intentions the whole time. If I can just, uh, my, like my, my, my take on that scene, um, that you mentioned is, uh, you know, so if, if you have these two kind of opposing, uh, forces, if you will, nature and grace, um, the way of nature and the way of grace. And we see throughout the film that, uh, Mr. O'Brien, uh, in kind of embodying this way of nature, it has to do with violence. You know, it's 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 one thing being stronger than another in a in a fairly like physical way. Um, and here she, you know, kind of starts to um, physically like push back against him. Um, but in the way of nature, it's all about strength, and he's stronger than her, and so he, tr- you know, she kind of tries the way of nature for for a moment um this this woman who in the the film is uh you know represents this this gracefulness uh tries uh violence for a moment and and can't do it because she doesn't have the strength to do it um the physical strength and so i kind of take that as just um a picture of um i mean it's a picture of their their marriage their relationship and uh, the strain um, that she feels, uh, you know, trying to be uh, accommodating uh, to a man who is very like self self loathing, um, and that kind of takes it out on his family in uh, anger when he can't control everything. Um, and so I, I I find that a really it's it's such a a kind of heartbreaking scene. Um, to watch her just kind of struggle for sure um, and and then kind of like go limp you know yeah she just gives up yeah 
Yeah, I guess the the grace na- uh, nature distinctions are a bit confusing to me because nature isn't just violent and grace is not just accommodating or mm-hmm. fun. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, Someone's heard Flannery O'Connor recently. <laughs> uh, and so I, I mean, both of their parenting styles were flawed, but to call her grace and to call him nature kind of seems to lift yeah, her up I think as that's right. being like the preferred parenting style. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely think that it, um, that, ne- that neither of them could, could be considered like good, good parents in and of themselves. I don't know. I, I, I do think that, 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 that nature grace distinction is, um, perhaps a little bit, it simplifies things a little bit too yeah. much, um, but it's it, nevertheless it's really interesting just to th- to s- look at the way in which they interact with each other, and uh, the way in which Jack struggles to to reconcile the two of them together. You know, as embodied in his father and mother. Um, so I it, so even though it might simplify it a little bit, I do think that there there's some value to to making those making that distinction and having you know trying to to you know attempt to embody that in in a character. Yeah, and, and I, I think, think you know when he when Mr. O'Brien goes on the business trip, you see her children overrun the house and she can't control them. And they start chasing her around, you know, with a lizard and she's, she's running away and trying to get them to, to calm down. And, and, and she has no power over them, uh, because, you know, the authority in the house is gone. Uh, and, and so, yeah, I, I agree that I think that there's, it's maybe, it does maybe flatten them a little bit to, to just kind of talk about them in terms of nature and grace. But I think to an extent, the film is setting them up in in that way not that it's like one to one but that those elements are very much tend towards yeah, those, those yeah i think that's, that's what i was going to say because yeah. I, I agree with lara's point that it's a little bit too simple you know we can't make the, the dichotomy so neat that mrs o'brien is grace and mr o'brien is nature because i mean let's be real to be um fully uh grace would be to be divine uh, and neither of them are divine. They're both human people. So I think the film is setting them up as um, not paragons of the way of nature and the way of grace, respectively, but um, rather as people who um, sort of tend in those directions, I think. Yeah, I think it's a good way of putting it. All right, Chandler, what struck you from the film? I mean, can I talk about... I'll, I'll talk about the dinosaurs. Um, well, before unless, you do that, can I talk about the creation did, did, thing? Because... Yeah, the creation's do mine, that. And, and your dinosaur one is yep. right in the middle of that. So, sure, go for it. So I, I don't want to wax eloquent for too long here, but just briefly, this is a 30-minute sequence in the film, and this is where I was really like, the film wasn't losing me because I actually loved watching this scene, but I was just wondering how in the world does this fit with the rest of what's to follow because this happens pretty early on. Uh, this is, of course, the visual complement to... God asking, where were you when I created the earth? We don't cut right from the beginning to creation, but we we get a little bit of the um, the Jack scene, we get the telegram scene, and then we have creation. Um, I mean, just for like, for, I think this is so wonderful because it does what literature cannot here. 
it pairs mm-hmm. mind-boggling visuals with absolutely fantastic audio, uh, namely yeah. uh, a requiems and right, exactly. classical music. Yeah, so just really, really stunning things. I mean, it reminds me, I like watching those um, like BBC Earth type of movies with our kids, and mm-hmm. the cinematography of those things always astounds me. Or if you look at like... Um, the cosmos, right? The first, the Carl Sagan one, now the Neil deGrasse Tyson one, incredible, incredible imagery that just show the amazingness of the world around us. And this scene was just like that. Um, and beautifully set to music. And it was just holding me kind of spellbound for the 30 minutes that it was going on. Really, really fantastic. Uh, and what I liked was it wasn't just here are the stars being formed and here's a black hole and here is a solar system being, spun out and created but it was it was even down to the almost atomal level uh or atomic level it was way more abstract than that it was i mean most of the time i was just like what is being created right now right exactly I don't know yeah so you had like you know nebulous gases forming in the void uh but then eventually you got down to the you know the microscopic level and saw you know single cell organisms being born and uh multiplying and everything and then eventually up through the world, almost as we know it, at least through the, or to the Jurassic period, if my uh, paleo, uh, whatever the Paleontology? term is. No, like geology, what's the, what discipline is it that knows like the Mesozoic <laughs> period from the Cretaceous, from the, you know what I mean? Whatever, whatever uh, person that would be, who would need to know that? Dinosaurologist. There we go. Yeah, that's, that's the person. <laughs> I mean, I guess a paleontologist would understand those things, I but hope so. But I don't know. When did dinosaurs live? Were they only alive in the Jurassic period, or did they like span the you know Cretaceous and Mesozoic and Jurassic periods, et cetera? I, forget. I don't know. I'm, I'm getting way too far. You Jurassic grade. Park. But I mean, speaking of dinosaurs, they're still, they're still kicking. Yeah, exactly. Jurassic Park, love it. Uh, Chris Pratt's finest work. Um, so yeah, what were you we supposed <laughs> to get from the dinosaurs? Yeah, That's so, Jurassic World, Zach. <laughs> good point. Okay, good point. <laughs> Yeah, we have a traditionalist over here. Um, <laughs> a purist. The a original purist, Jurassic yeah. Park. All right, so anyway, there, yeah, so these dinosaurs jump into that middle, the middle of that sequence, Chandler. Yeah, the, the dinosaurs. And I mean, I've got a lot of favorite uh, parts from this movie that I'd love to talk about, but I think no conversation about the tree of life, and especially about the things that are kind of weird about the movie, uh, can can really kind of wrap up without talking about the dinosaurs. So in the middle of this creation sequence, after we get past the kind of mitochondria and cell stuff, um, you see woods. And the camera is, you know, looks like it's handheld. It's shaking a little bit. It's got this very organic feel as it does throughout the whole movie. And then you kind of notice, oh, there's a dinosaur there. Um, And it's not one of those, you know, it's not the Jurassic Park kind of dinosaur. It's these kind of little, you know, smaller guys. Uh, and, uh, you know, just, just your ordinary dinosaur, right? Um, and then you see um, a, a dinosaur kind of lying down uh, beside a, a creek. Um, and then a predator comes by. And uh, instantly, you know, the, the kind of herbivore dinosaur lying on the on the rocks it kind of like notices and it tenses up um but it knows you get the sense that it knows that it can't outrun the predator and so it just kind of sits there 
as this predator kind of runs over and looks down at it for a moment and then kind of puts its foot on its face, almost as if it's like, I'm about to attack you, and then releases, gives it another glance, and then, and then runs off. And so it's, it's a strange scene that took me a couple times to, of, of the viewing before I really kind of started to piece together my take on it. But I think it's an interesting scene because it is uh, a picture of kind of what we were talking about earlier, that this dichotomy between nature and grace is not, it's not um, hard and fast. Uh, but in fact, um, it, they're kind of active in... Uh, in in all of creation, in a sense. Now, I'm not going to go saying that uh, these, these dinosaurs have a conscience and it was suddenly like, oh, I'm going to, you know, give mercy. I'm going to be merciful or something. But I think what Malik is doing here is is um, showing, you know, this uh, this in a very natural setting where you'd think that grace wouldn't be found. Uh, that there's this dinosaur, you know, this creature that. Um, relents, you know, it, it doesn't attack, you know, it doesn't do what is natural. Um, and I think in the middle of this creation sequence, it just, it, it just, it, it fits that it's, um, kind of demonstrating, uh, the nature and grace themes. And, and also, I mean, it's by a, it's by a Creek. I don't know. I mean, there's something, uh, that almost feels like uh, psalm-like about the about the setup. I mean, maybe I'm maybe that's a stretch going there, but um, but I think I think you know Malik is up to something kind of spiritual with that scene, uh, and uh, and that's why I think it's a really interesting part of the movie. Yeah, I'm actually I think I have a dissenting opinion on the on the dinosaurs. I don't like the dinosaur scene for a couple of reasons. One, I think the animation falls a little bit short. Um, okay, yeah, that's fair. And, uh, I mean, like we're on the heels of this just fantastic creation sequence. That's one of the most visually arresting things I've ever seen. And then I get these like cheesy dinosaur animations. I mean, it's not like, che- it's not like the land before time. Like I, I want to give credit to, <laughs> I want to give credit to the animators who did this. It's pretty good. I mean, it's, I would say it's better than like the original Jurassic park. Uh, probably not as good as like the lost, uh, um, Jurassic world or whatever. Um, but I don't like the animation. I also just, um, I don't, I don't know if the, like the demonstration of grace comes through that strongly for me um, i mean i didn't pick up on that but i love chandler's interpretation of it because if that's what terrence malick is saying that we aren't victims to nature and that grace can break through even in what would seem like the most heartless violent natural setting that's awesome i agree <laughs> well i also think it's worth pointing out that this is in a pre-eden time right so this is before mankind is alive this would be before the primeval event of the fall um and so this is a this is a place where grace does indeed permeate not just the entire animal kingdom but the entire cosmos itself you know the very fabric of the cosmos has not yet been uh corrupted by sin so that's that's interesting and it's it's i think that that frames the action of the dinosaur a little bit differently there as well now i think we could go to like thomas aquinas you know would there be animal on animal violence prior to that primeval event i mean i think uh yes probably but that would um that would not be an evil uh at properly considered as such but i mean i digress a little bit i think that i I like your interpretation chandler uh i certainly think it's the right one i just don't know if the dinosaur scene quite does it for me 
Yeah, and I, you know that's that's totally valid. I, I think it's one of those one of those scenes that I, in fact, I have a uh, my boss at work. Uh, he hates that scene. <laughs> so I mean, it's a divisive thing. Um, but uh, I, you know, I I have to give Malik a little credit there just because it's it's bold. Um, and in a film filled with bold choices, I think it kind of stands out as as particularly uh, strange. Yeah, for sure. And I like it. Yeah, can we talk real quick on the topic of bold choices? I think um, it's always it's always a bold choice when a filmmaker tries to portray heaven in any way, shape, or form. Yeah, and right. the, the portrayal of heaven, or uh, perhaps we could perhaps we could say like this is a partial beatific vision or something at the end, right? When Jack does encounter does enter into this strange sandbar where dead people are rising from the dead and walking and, in the water and his family's all around, et cetera. I mean, that's a really bold move as well. Did that scene work for you guys? I mean, I, I gotta be honest. I'm like that, that, um, at times holds me back a little bit because it's, uh, it feels very abstract. Um, and for, trying to represent heaven it seems a little devoid of joy <laughs> i agree and of god yeah it's just yeah right right it's just like everybody's reuniting with their loved ones and it's it's like we're kind okay, of making well, that's peace not exactly with each the other purpose of heaven yeah <laughs> yeah right right yeah so it i it's not like i don't think it's a great representation of heaven um but. i don't i don't necessarily hold that up against the film given that we're talking about trying to visually represent something that um we can't see <laughs> you know right. it's it's a you know it's a it's a tricky thing and to do it in a film with such a a, a mix of this kind of uh, formal and uh, experimental boldness and also a, a very much a narrative restraint i think it you know I don't see really how else they, they would have done it. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, that's what I'm getting at, I think, with my bold question. I mean, I, I don't like the scene very much, but I don't have a better idea for how it would be executed more effectively, <laughs> right. right? I mean, right. yeah, like, how do you capture the beatific vision on 8 millimeter or whatever it was they shot this <laughs> on, right? Like, it's, uh, it's a pretty tall order. I don't know. I mean, uh, there's this, there's this um, prayer by St. Thomas Aquinas that talks about um, you know, uh, getting to heaven and being met with, you know, the joy that knows no end, gladness, unalloyed and perfect bliss. And I just don't know how you capture anything like that on film. Maybe the closest thing you can get to it in any sort of visual way is like, Hey, here are all the people that I loved. And here's us with like no conflict and no death and no, um, no fear anymore. Um, you know what, you know what it was? Um, there no golden streets. I mean, uh, no no clouds. You know, no harps. Pearl, pearly uh, gates. Yeah. No pearly gates. Yeah, I mean, all those things are. are, are I think. Uh, <laughs> I think they should have done that instead. Yeah, uh, would have been great. That would have definitely done it for me. Streets paved with gold, where the streets have no name, no less. Like no street signs with names on them. <laughs> I would get really. The lost. streets have to be golden and have no names. Um, okay, well, let's do this. This will be a fun exercise. Let's each pick three adjectives. And even though I knew we were going to ask this question, I have not thought about this, my answer until this moment. But let's each pick three adjectives that describe for us this film. Sal, and I'm going to credit where 
credit. This is Chandler's question. Yeah. Chandler's question. Which is probably why I haven't thought about it until now. (laughs) His idea to to do this. So Chandler probably has great adjectives. For that reason, I was going to put Sally on the spot. I'm going to put Chandler on the spot instead. Oh yeah. He should start. And uh, and say, Chandler, what are three adjectives that describe this film? All right. uh, I think my three adjectives would have to be uh, cosmic, intimate, and whisper. (laughs) Nice. Um, yeah, I, I, what was the know, second one? The cosmic, obvious, co- cosmic, intimate, and okay. uh, and whisper. Got it. Um, yeah, for the obvious reason that uh, there's a lot of whisper voiceovers in this. One one might perhaps say too many, but <laughs> I think that's just like comes with the territory as far as Malik goes. Yeah. Okay, cosmic, intimate, and whisper. All right, Lara, what do you have? Three adjectives. Uh, well. Whenever I describe it to someone, I I usually use the word experimental. Uh, and I don't know if I use that because I'm trying to like warn them <laughs> of what <laughs> what's what they're going to see. Um, but it is it's very it's um I don't know maybe innovative would have be would be a better word. Um, because Malik was really trying to do something that has not has not really been done before um just in this style um and and it took him decades yeah he he was working on this film for a very 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 long time um and so uh, so maybe innovative is a better word um i don't <laughs> I have one word. <laughs> All right, that's one. Um, you can think about two more while I put Sally on the spot. Sally, do you have any adjectives to describe this? Okay, yeah. So I've thought about this a lot today. Um, so I think I'm that... glad you thought about this way more than I did. <laughs> <laughs> um, this is not the most flattering, but like trippy. It was just a very disorienting experience. So maybe disorienting. Um, but now that I've learned about the cubist editing, maybe I would just say cubist. Uh <laughs> And then meditative, because just a lot of it was just this. Yeah, I mean, for a lot of the reasons we've already said, it just it felt like a meditative experience. And my last one is something akin to genius, just because it was so unique and and even just I've learned so much just through our conversation tonight that I think it's even more genius the way he lays out the story than I did before. Those are good. Yeah, I think I definitely agree with all of those. Laura, did you come up with a couple more? Um, well, I guess this is similar to, to, to meditative, but con- contemplative. Uh, and in which, you know, I think it, 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 it certainly is, um, in, in, be, in, 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 because it's a film that is, has so little dialogue, it really, it, it does force you to contemplation, I think. Um, and it certainly seems contemplative on the, the director's part as well. Um, and I don't know. This is, this is a struggle. I should have thought about this more. That's okay. We can, you can, you can only have two, not a problem. Um, all right, Zach, what are your three? I think mine are fun, action packed and, (laughs) (laughs) Um, just Super kidding. Super heroic. Okay, I think I would go with uh, transcendent. Mm. Um, 
not in not in the way that this film like defies all possible categories and exceeds. But it's, it's all, reaching to the yeah, transcendent. Yeah, exactly. It's so it reaches, grasping. it tries to convey the transcendent. This does certainly, although I, I have my quibbles with it, et cetera, this has um, qualities that I think certainly elevate this above like modern American cinema, right? This is, um, this cannot be, this, this, you know, is in the same, this is the same medium as Avengers Endgame to pick on my favorite uh, movie to pick on. But this does not deserve to be in the same conversation as like the same art form in any way, shape, or form. So yeah, in, I mean, in I'm that trying sense, to think of another movie that tries to do what he's trying to do. Um, but c- continue your yeah. Words. I mean, I, I guess I guess there are a few. I mean, I think something like you know, The Passion of the Christ is also you know tr- like reaching for these lofty. Sure, aims, sure, know? yeah. Um, so Transcendent would be my first one, and then the second two go together. The first is very similar to Chandler's, which is quiet. The whole film is very quiet. Um, especially from the perspective of human dialogue, we don't have much talking at all. We have we have music that's sometimes pretty loud, but in general, the whole film is very quiet. There's lots of um, not quite awkward, but but sort of unsettling scenes, which leads me to my, to my second uh, this, the, the second part of this pair, my third word, which is disquieting. So it's a quiet film that ultimately is, I think, disquieting. Yes, um, very unnerving. You know, I mean, how how countercultural is it for anybody in our state of life to? sit alone with their thoughts for just a second. I saw a funny meme about uh, COVID stuff. And this person was like, all we had to do for for COVID-19 was to sit alone with our thoughts for a, a little bit. But instead, all of us were like, no, I'm going to learn how to bake bread from scratch. <laughs> and like picked up a, a hobby um, just for the sake of doing it. We are not good at being alone with our thoughts. We're not, we're not good at, at asking questions and listening for answers or trying to discern the answers. And I think this film is ultimately disquieting for that reason. It's engaging with what is ultimately the fundamental question of life, which is why is there pain? You know, it's, it's the problem of pain. Um, and the this kind of secondary question that flows from that is does what does if it says anything at all what does pain the existence of pain tell us about God about our origin about our place in the world etc. Um, and so it's it's trying to deal with that question to a very modern audience that's not used to asking that question and certainly um, in at least many cases it doesn't want even to know the answer to that question they'd rather just ignore it altogether. So disquieting would be my third word. Nice. Yeah, I, I like think those. to that. To that point, Zach, um, if I had to pick one thing that I admire most about this film and about the films of Malick's that I've seen, is that he is a filmmaker who's very uh, interested and wants to tell stories about souls, not just about people, not about societies, not about uh, problems and issues, uh, but about souls. Um, and I think that's really to his credit because he's interested in going far, far beneath the surface. Uh, and in fact, so far beneath the surface that he leaves behind most of the normal surface pleasures that we go to the movies to see. Right. Uh, you know, things like plot, for example. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, he does it. He does it in a way that um, I think uh, is is effective for sure. Um, and, and also, you know, you think about, um, it, it, it really kind of drives you to think about, uh, those kinds of, uh, questions, uh, on your own, which is not something that, that a lot of films, uh, these days are trying to do. 
That is well said. And I think that is a great way for us to wrap up this conversation. So glad Wait, we could keep this I have this a third too. word. Oh, oh go oh. for it, Laura. <laughs> My word is epic. And by epic, I don't mean like, you know, the glib modern day sense of the epic. word. But like catching a big yeah, wave, epic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. No, I mean, uh, in the sense of, you know, what an, an epic narrative is, it, it's... Um, it's a narrative that spans a long period of time that tells a story um, often of um, a family or um, at least, the, you know, someone's More than just life. one individual. Yeah, um, right. And it, 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 it does, it deals with the soul um, oftentimes and, um, and especially with all of its biblical aspects. Um, the yeah, the tree of life certainly has that epic feel to it. I think that's exactly right. I like it, and I mean, it's not just an epic. I think it's the epic. I mean, not to say that this is like the standard by which all truth is judged, but to say that it is, it is telling the story of the epic. I mean, we think of epics as like grand stories of human activity or humans' quest for the divine, or even the divine's uh, you know reaching the, the divine reaching for humanity. But ultimately, the epic is the story of creation, the fall, and redemption. And that's what this this movie is illustrating for us. So. It's what Chandler was saying before about kind of like archetypes that right. that, that uh, re- recur in different cultures and societies. Yeah. So I think that's well said. I love that third word, Lara. Uh, and we'll wrap it up there. I'm glad we could, we could keep it to our target time of 30 minutes for this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so... Thanks, as always, for your time, folks. Love talking about The Tree of Life with you. We love talking about movies with you. Love talking to you. So let's do it again sometime. Uh, For our listeners, if you want to follow Chandler's work, uh, go to ChandlerRide.com. If you want to read Lara Ride's most recent article, you can look in the show notes and we will link to it. But it is on the French film, is it Le Joux? Is that how you pronounce it? Le Joux, yeah. Published in uh, Brightwall Dark Room, a very prominent film journal. Le Jeu. Did I pronounce that correctly, Laura? I'm working on my French. <laughs> Beautiful. She's a budding film Lovely. critic, and that it's a fantastic piece. It's a very good piece. Very nicely done, Laura. So, yeah, we'll link that to the show notes. We'll link Chandler's thing. If you want to reach out to us, Zach and Sally, Z-A-C and Sally, at vernacularpodcast.com. Chandler and Laura, thank you so much for joining us. Until next time, have a great week. You know that. I'm by your side